Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, is a man whose work has taken him from the Federal Reserve to the International Monetary Fund to City, and now to the Milken Institute, where he joins us from. It's Bill Lee, the chief economist of the Milken Institute. It's great to catch up with you, Mr. Bill Lee. Um, can we just begin with the government shutdown, and how much longer does this need to go on before you start having to, uh, to revise your first quarter GDP estimate in the United States? Well, I think this is a lot of noise, and I think the the market's treating it like a lot of noise. So I don't think we'll do anything to our GDP numbers because, let's face it, the government workers get paid regardless. And and the thing that's disruptive right now is the supply of government services, which on average really has been relatively smooth. So as far as our GDP forecast is concerned, absolutely no effect. One of the things that we should be worried about is what this means for the prospect of further policies like infrastructure and the rest of the Trump agenda. If we have children arguing about politics, the best thing I think the president can do right now is get himself out of here, which he's done. He's going to go to Davos and talk about globalism and internationalism and, and how the world is going to have have this world in transition, how we're going to manage policy in that world. And to be an adult in a playground of children here in Washington. Well, let's um, use your phrasing, the playground of children in, in Washington, before we get to Davos, Switzerland with Tom Keane, Bill. Um, what does this mean for the uh, potential agreement, if there could be one, uh, around the debt ceiling, which is set to come around in, in the next couple of months? Yeah, that's but that's the key, Jonathan. I mean, the fact that we have a couple of months, and and the, we know the Treasury can do some extraordinary measures to manage their cash flow. Uh, markets, as and as you know, just have not reacted to this. And if you look at past experience, the one thing that we always prioritize are the interest payments on the debt, and yeah. and, and not to go to technical default. So one of the things that that we should worry about then would be how it is that the politics starts to come into play here and whether or not the political capital is being used up on the part of the Republicans and the Democrats because neither side shows any sign of life. But then the policy, remember, the policy they're worried about is immigration policy. This is a global problem. That's why we had Brexit, right? Because part of the reason is because the immigration policy was was threatening uh, national sovereignty. So, so this is a big issue, a global yeah. issue. And, and, and I think they, they have to address it. And I think right now, Congress has passed the buck for so long, the, it's about time the president says, look, do something about it. Bill Ling, the Milken Institute chief economist, joining us today on Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Jonathan Farrow in New York City. Tom Keane over in Davos, Switzerland. Tom, good morning to you, sir. Good morning, John Farrow. A snowy Davos, record snow in Davos. I haven't seen a really detailed history of the January snow here, but I am certain it is record back 15 and even 25 years. Easily a hockey goal of snow on the ground all the way up and down the mountain. And John, as you know, getting here can be a challenge. And, you know, I think there'll be some real challenges in getting uh, the warm bodies up the mountain here in the next 24 hours. Warm bodies like yourself, Tom Keane, who um, have to get the train all the way up the mountain. I, I suspect that the President of the United States is going to take a rather different route up to the mountains that um, that you took, Tom. Well, that, that's true. I think I think the President's visit is clearly a high point here, but of many high points. And William Lee, what was so interesting this morning, and I guess it's not that I expected this, but it's the surprise of uh, this Monday, folks, at the, at the meetings, is the talk of Mr. Macron. He has been Bill Lee 
on an international mission for France and for a certain Macron international economics. Define that for our audience. What is the economics of the president of France? You know, Tom, we have both joked in the past about how France is sort of like the the hub of regulatory impasse and policy impasse and how France really has seen its better day in the past. Macron is trying to change all that and trying to say our policies are going to put France back into the center of the dynamic of capitalism again. Now, I think we both are sort of chuckling and saying, well, good luck on that because you have a lot of bureaucracy to overcome, a lot of uh, historical regulation to overcome. One of the things that, that we need to make sure of is that the political leaders who come to Davos Talk a good story, but let's see the action. Last year, the president of China, Xi Jinping came from China and said, I am a globalist. And what's happened since then? One belt, one road is falling apart. <laughs> they're, they're trying to say, you know, China is just too dominant here and we just can't lose our sovereignty to China. I think this this year we need to watch out for what the political leaders say because it has to be backed by action. I've and- got to say, Bill, the point you make there, Tom, the idea that the president of China was able to go to Davos, Switzerland and claim to be a globalist is something that still, still yeah. makes me shake my head to this day. I I agree, and I will say this, and folks, this is my 14th year up Happy Valley. Uh, I will say that this valley came to a total stop when the president of China spoke last year. I wonder if that's going to happen on Friday with a scheduled speech of uh, uh, the president. Bill Lee, what kind of economy is the president bringing with us? He wants to take a victory lap on Dow 26,000. Is it a 3% GDP economy? Tom, it took Nixon to go to China. It's going to take Trump to talk about globalism. And I think one of the things that we're going to see is a new sense of globalism that includes national priorities. And and I hope he makes that speech. I hope he makes that transition because it's so important. One of the things that we're going to worry about in our own Milken conference in, in, in uh, late April, early May is navigating a world in transition. And I think one of the things that, that, that differs uh, from what you guys are addressing is that you see the world is fractured right now. And how do you deal with that fracturedness? Navigating that transition is part of that fracturedness. And I think one of the things that, that, that has to be done is to have policies in place that take into account the realities of the world. We have political fracturedness, we have economic fracturedness and financial fracturedness, but now how do you navigate that? And I think that's one of the themes that we'll be discussing in, in Los Angeles. So come to the warm weather, Tom. Bill, this doesn't have to be a difference between globalism and nationalism when the president of the United States goes to Davos, Switzerland. I go back to the idea that the Chinese president was able to go to Davos and claim to be a globalist. Why is this administration failing to deliver what is quite a simple message that the current framework for global trade is not fair? It is not a level playing field. The Chinese still have significant barriers to entry at the same time. They are leveraging the open door to markets in Europe and and to markets in the United States as well. Why is this administration really failing to deliver what is at its core quite a simple and basic message that I think many economists might agree with that there needs to be a leveling of the playing field here? Absolutely. And, And I think it's unfortunate that the election place Trump in this uh, in this box that characterized him as some wild man who's going to shut down trade and shut down all the borders and shut down all of the the entry into the US and make it a, an isolated autarkic economy one uh, that that is the image that he's got to get rid of and say look we're part of the global economy and we're trying to develop internationalism into a a set of bilateral deals instead of this big massive multilateral deal that nobody's happy with and so so the essence is the new shaping of policy initiatives has got to be 
to, to deal more with the realities of the world and how to address them. Finally, Bill, can he do that this week? Boy, <laughs> fingers crossed. Uh, I, I think the talk among the globalists and internationalists is the guy isn't smart enough to really pull this off. And I hope he's going to surprise them on the upside on that. Because right now, the British Chablis crowd are writing it off and saying he's just going to make a fool of himself. Let's see if he does. Bill Lee, Milken Institute Chief Economist. He joins us to discuss the global economy. This is Bloomberg Surveillance with myself, Jonathan Farrow, in New York City and Tom Keane in Davos, Switzerland, all week on Bloomberg Radio. What better time to bring in a guest who has created and produced high-profile platforms, including the World Economic Forum, annual meeting in Davos, the Clinton Global Initiative, and the Nobel Laureates Conferences. Just to name a few, his name is Richard Attias of Richard Attias and Associates. Richard, it's always great to have you with us on the program. Thank you for having me. Let's imagine you're putting together a big event. It's in the mountains of Davos, Switzerland, and then all of a sudden, the President of the United States decides that he's going to attend just a couple of weeks before it kicks off. How much trouble does that cause? Oh, you know, it happened in 2000 uh, when President Clinton decided to come. I think it was the last one who came. Of course, it's a logistic nightmare. Usually Air Force One just land in Zurich. Then you have to probably take helicopters to go to Davos. And we don't know what will be the weather on Friday, which is a second potential nightmare with the snow, because if the snow do not allow helicopters to land, <laughs> if they have to take cars, which is another backstory. And then uh, definitely the city is much locked than any any other day. And usually when the, the room is packed, uh, everyone wants to attend the session. Definitely the president of the United States, whoever he is, is by definition a rock star. So uh, it's definitely a nightmare. And um, the city is people are making big lines. So uh, you, you can guess how it is. Yeah. when the president of the United States of America is going somewhere. So it's even worse in a very small ski resort with snow and, uh, and 3,000 delegates, uh, including big global CEOs who do not understand why they should wait <laughs> <laughs> to, to give room to the president of the United States Tom, of America. Tom Keane also <laughs> hates waiting, Richard. I, I don't imagine you know, it's a group gonna... of big egos, so you have to manage these egos. Keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, I guess a big question then. Logistical nightmare, but surely this is a PR dream. Yes, no, definitely. You know, uh, I think President Trump, uh, if he goes, because uh, to be honest, I would not be surprised, depending on what the, uh, happened with the government shutdown, if we uh, dis- suddenly learn that he's not going anymore. But I think he doesn't care, to be honest. He wants to go there. He wants to talk to this elite. I'm sure he wants to be a little bit provocative. And as you know better than me, his way of communication is direct communication. He cannot just continue to talk through Twitter. He doesn't want to make big interviews, so he'll go and he will be on stage. What will be interesting to see and to watch is which format the President of the United States will adopt. Will it be only a speech between, behind the lectern with no questions? Or if he will accept to maybe take two, three questions, probably not from the floor, from the audience, but president, probably from the founder of the World Economic Forum, which probably will be with him on stage. I hope that this question, if they happen, will be very direct and yeah. will help to learn what is happening and what is in the mind of the President Trump. Well, that's a terrific summary. And of course, this comes from your your decades of experience, Rashad. When, when I look at the 
options that the president has, which would you advise his team I to would, do? I would Friday? definitely do both, which is delivering a 20-minute speech followed by probably a 10-15 minute Q&A session. Why? Because people need to understand really what President Trump has in mind, especially with all these reforms. We know that he will probably talk for 20 minutes about how America is great, the best place to invest, because he will be competing with many other destinations. You know, each single world leaders who are in Davos, from President Macri of Argentina, President Macron of France, and probably even Theresa May, in the big paradox of the Brexit, are going to Davos to explain to world leaders that their country is the best place to invest today and that the time is now. Uh, President Macron is hosting the minute we are talking in Paris, a pre-Davos forum at Versailles, in the castle of Versailles, with 150 global CEOs who accepted his invitation, which was sent only end of December. So this is showing you how world leaders are in permanent now connection with global CEOs and how global CEOs wants to be connected to world leaders. So back to President Trump, I think definitely he should explain what he's doing. You know, everybody is watching uh, the great stock markets in America. So people have to understand if it is a bubble or if it is solid. And why I should put my money in the American industries. And when I look at the list of potential uh, members of cabinet coming with him, definitely they will have bilateral meetings talking about transportation, healthcare, energy. These are definitely the sectors where people want to probably see opportunities in the country. Richard Atias of uh, Richard Assis and Associates. Great to catch up with you to kind of lean on your experience of putting global events like the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland together as the President of the United States is set to descend on Switzerland. John, uh, the snow is so great here, and it is not funny. It is very serious in Switzerland, and that, of course, is avalanches. Yeah. I have never seen the warnings out there. Zermatt, I believe, is closed again down to the south, and um, uh, it's just everywhere. It's here, Here's the report at 5 p.m. last night. John, you'll love this site. Samstagaben ist mehr Schnee gefallen als erwartet wurde. Yeah. Auf Montag sind weiter stark Schneefall Vorausgag. That's helpful, Tom. Uh, that's very helpful. Thank you. We that's appreciate about that. A, that is about as clear as a government shutdown <laughs> language in Washington, which is a good way to migrate in German, or fractured German, I should say, to the fractured nation. Is that German? And a shutdown. <laughs> Greg Vallier with us, whose German is, is better than, or anybody's German is better than mine. Greg, good morning. You have seen you've seen many shutdowns. The one that's so different here is this White House response. What will you listen for or look for from the White House in the next forty eight hours? Well, Tom, something explicit, something coherent from the president. I mean, so far it's very unclear just what he wants. I, I, I look at it, Greg, and I think all of us have read the obligatory articles and we've looked at the obligatory things. An open question. What sticks out to Greg Vallier about what went down? What, what made you scratch your head at 2 a.m.? 
Oh, beyond any question, Tom, the fact that uh, Schumer put the wall on the table. He is willing to negotiate on the wall. Very unclear as to how much money they're talking about, differing versions. But he did put that on the table, and I think that's important. Greg, I want to ask you a question about the term the White House. Tom asked you where the White House stands on this issue. It's not clear to me that the view of the, say, White House is necessarily the view of the President of the United States. There doesn't seem to be one coherent view within the White House. It's something that Tom's asked me about this morning. Do you see a coherent White House here, Greg? Well, when you look at two important aides, the Chief of Staff, John Kelly, and this fellow uh, Miller, I mean, they both are very hard line on immigration. They uh, don't want full citizenship. They want a wall. They don't want chain immigration, all this stuff. So they are taking a hard line. The problem is when the president gets into a negotiating session, he softens, he wants to be conciliatory, and then these advisors yank him right back. So what leads to reconciliation here? Is it the polls going against one party versus the other? What leads to a break here? That could be it, but frankly, I think this is going to go on for a very long time. Even if there's a deal today to keep the government open until February 8th, that just means we have another crisis on February 8th, and we could go right back into a shutdown again. Here's the problem. Both parties have activists on the right and on the left who will not agree to a centrist deal. And these activists could preclude a deal for quite a while. You do this, Greg, in your report this morning. You say the center may not hold. I get that. But there has to be a catalyst to common sense. What's the catalyst? Well, I think Mitch McConnell plays a big role here. He He's very conscious that they could have big losses in the November elections. I think he also was aghast at this idea of changing the filibuster rule. I think he feels, as many people do, Schumer overplayed his hand. So I think McConnell could play actually a very constructive role. Okay, so, so he can play a constructive role, and I guess we need leadership. Let me circle back to my first question. If we all assume, whether we support Mr. Trump or not, that this president is a political neophyte, where's the person to teach him what to do in these unusual circumstances? I, 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 Lindsey Graham is clearly front and center as a unique kind of Southern, mm-hmm. always intriguing Republican, but where's the helper of the president in this mess? It could be McConnell. Uh, I think Graham is, is a bit tainted at the White House. You know, another thing that could maybe chasing this president since he's so obsessed with the markets. If the dollar and the markets start to weaken based on a fear of utter chaos in this city, that's something that would get Trump's attention. Well, Greg, that's not going to work because it's not happening yet. And I remember when the president yeah. of the United States used to be called Barack Obama and President Obama came out and said things like, the market should be worried. And it was the old mm-hmm. debt ceiling debate. And guess what? The market wasn't worried. So he wouldn't be the yeah. first one that would um, try to lean on the market to move things along. You frame this as an activist Democrats versus activist Republican story. And within the core of those parties, within the electorate, remains those activists on either side. But are those activists willing to shut down the government for their cause? Does that support remain? 
Yes, I do. I think for now they are. And as we as we discussed earlier, maybe if the polls turn, it would change attitudes. But right now, they're dug in pretty good. And again, I would caution everyone, if there's a deal in the next day or two or three, that does not mean we get anything by February 8th. And this we could go right back into a crisis in two and a half weeks. So, Greg, what does a crisis actually look like? It's a strong word. What's a crisis in the nation's capital? Well, yeah, I, I think a crisis is eight or 900,000 people out of work, and that does eventually have an impact on consumer spending. Uh, it certainly has an impact on defense contractors who already are confused. We're four months into a new fiscal year, and they don't know what their budgets are going to be. So this does become a confidence issue. We're not there yet, but a three, four, five-week shutdown, and I think confidence starts to erode. So, Greg, let's get to the bigger issue. The market's looking the other way as far as the government shutdown is concerned, mm-hmm. at least for now. Might change, but it isn't at the moment. Let's get to the debt ceiling debate. What's the read across from this to the debt ceiling debate and how ugly that could be in the coming months? Yeah, this is just like the hors d'oeuvre. This is like the appetizer. The debt ceiling story probably will peak in early April. And here's here's the bottom line. There are not enough votes to raise the debt ceiling. Certainly not enough votes among Republicans who won't do it. Will Democrats go along and cooperate? I'm not so sure. Okay, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate the briefing after what has been an exhausted uh, weekend. We can't say enough about his Horizon Investment effort to greet our morning with uh, his perspective on capital. I have really been looking forward to this discussion. It's away from Davos, I guess. It's away from economics, I guess. And maybe it's just about where we're all heading in our homes. Yes, in our businesses, but in our homes with this thing called media. Craig Moffat and Michael Nathanson have a shingle out of excellence on media and telephonic analysis at Moffat Nathanson. They worked for years at Sanford Bernstein. And Michael Nathanson joins us right now. Michael, I I could start with eight topics, but I'm going to give you an open question of the cliche of a decade ago, which is content is king. Is content still king? Good morning, Tom. Um, I think I think we're moving to something called platform is king. I think it's about getting massive aggregation scale, and content. Your your content doesn't have to be the best content in the world. But if you have enough connected homes, enough subscribers, it's good enough. And I think that's what Netflix has proven. They've got some good content, but they also have 100 million subscribers. So better content may be squeezed out on smaller platforms. So I think we're now moving to an era where scale, you know, maybe it's distribution scale, maybe it's platform scale, scale is going to matter. Michael, for a moment, we thought there could be only one winner. Right. And many people identified that one winner as Netflix. We're now seeing Netflix become less dependent compared to where they were, say, a couple of years ago, on other people's content. Can there be more than one winner in this space? Oh, John, without a doubt. And since I've last seen you about a month ago, we've had that Fox-Disney merger, right? Yeah. If you look at the, the content that they're going to amass, they're in pretty good shape. Now they have to build their platform. But I think what the markets may be missing here is that it's not a winner-take-all business. You see it in broadcasts with three or four networks. You see it on premium channels with HBO Showtime. You can have more than one SVOD winner. Netflix is definitely one. Disney Fox could be the second. Amazon's going to be a third. Uh, so yeah, I think it's going to be a much more competitive landscape. 
And finally, Disney has woken up and said, you know, we should be in this business. And by buying Fox, they've bought more long tail library content to put on that platform. So that's where they're moving towards. Well, it's going to be interesting, Michael, to see what they do with the content they've acquired from Fox and, and how they treat Netflix with some of the content that runs on Netflix. They've already said on the Disney side of things that they're going to sever any license agreement with Netflix going forward. Are they going to do the same thing with the 21st Century Fox assets, do you think, Michael? Oh, without a doubt. We did a note about this a couple months ago, and we went through Netflix's catalog, and we said that Fox very quietly had supplied Netflix with some of their best shows, A Family Guy, all the FX shows, um, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. They basically gave them a lot of great content. They've been saying very quietly that they're pulling content off of Netflix, and they're going to put it on... Hulu, which is now owned by Disney. So I think both Fox and Disney's content will not be on Netflix a year, year and a half from now. I mean, all this copyrighted material and the, the argument over rights, it, does it make the valuations just go up, up, up? If there's, I mean, there's too much stuff, Michael, for me to watch or anybody in my family to watch, but does the glut of content just continue? Tom, I was, it's funny. I was talking to my wife about this morning. There's 500 new scripted shows on the air. In, in, in calendar 17, 500 scripted shows. There's no way that any family could stay on top of that, right? So you default to a couple shows that you've heard of, but you also go back to catalog. You know, for comedies, you watch Seinfeld, Friends, Family Guy. It's, you know, Big Bang Theory. So there's definitely going to be more and more content produced, but you'll have less time to consider that content. You'll stick to some of the long tail, big, big name content, and then you'll probably go back yeah. to things that you're comfortable with. So Buying a library is going to go up in value. You know, it really will be. You, it's going to be. You don't want to be in the business of having small, you know, unknown shows like some yeah. of our cable networks, where you basically don't get traction. You keep investing in more and more shows, but you're getting no traction. So that's a tough place to be. And we think a lot of cable networks are going to have to consolidate or basically stop spending because they can't make the money work anymore. So Michael, as a Giants fan, I won't ask you about the Super Bowl. Tom Keane might. That's up to him. But since we're sitting across from each other, I'll protect myself and we'll avoid that topic. But I do want to talk to you about the price of sport content. It's getting more and more expensive, whether it's over the Premier League rights in the United Kingdom and and soccer rights there, or whether it's in the United States and and the NFL, etc. The price of sport and the content is getting more expensive. But as an asset, the eyes on that particular asset are falling away. They're not increasing. So I don't see the growth in the viewership alongside the growth in the value that people are paying for these assets. That doesn't make sense to me, Michael. Why are we still doing this? Okay, great question. We're doing this, John, because when when you turn on the TV set on a given night and there's a sporting event, you want that game to be on. So last night's Let's say last night's first game because the second game was not good. But the first game, Patriots, right? Patriots, Jacksonville, that's a game that you want to watch. And if your distributor, if your cable operator doesn't have that game, you're going to switch cable operators. So I think what we're missing is the rate. Yes, ratings are coming down, but the passion for the people who remain to watch that is incredibly high. And therefore, if you don't have that as a distributor, you will lose a customer. So unfortunately, it's, yeah. a, it's a shrinking contributor to the ecosystem. But as a as a passion play, right. it's nothing better, you know, what's to drive your, people. What's your passion for buy, hold, sell? I mean, what's where's the value in this crazy bull market in the Michael Nathanson space? Yeah, Tom. You know, it's interesting. The past couple of months have been really um, surprising. 
we've seen we've seen a so we have buys on Disney and Fox. That's been consistently our buys because both those companies own a ton of live sports proprietary content. So we've always been Disney bulls, as you know, and we've been Fox bulls. Absent that in traditional media, we have a really hard time with all the changing, um, you know, the changing landscape. And again, we come back to we're a fang. We cover the fangs. Facebook and Google just seem to us as the place to go, and they are not that expensive relative to the growth they, they deliver. So I remain pretty bearish on yeah. traditional media, and I can't help but look at those fangs and say, you know, two of the three we cover are really good value yeah. for the growth they deliver. We're going to come back on that. I know John Farrell and I yeah. want to talk about Facebook and the video. John, one more question. Squeeze it in with Mr. Nathanson. Oh, thank please. you, Tom. I appreciate that. Well, um, Michael, this conversation, based on the assumption that the actual Disney Fox deal closes, um, could take a while, might not happen at all. Where do you stand on that right now? What's the base case for you guys? Well, I'll tell you, our, our, base, our base case here is we were surprised that Disney, you know, that this deal included all the regional sports networks because what Disney is going to own, if this deal goes through, will be ESPN, ABC, and your local regional sports network. That seems like too much concentration of power. We're assuming that they're going to have to divest the RSNs, the regional sports network. So we assume the deal goes through, but that Disney is going to have to divest an asset to get it through. And I don't think that's, that's not out of mainstream thinking. Mm. So... That's not why they're buying Fox. They're buying Fox for that TV and a film library and for FX, which is well, those three properties have a ton of content for the long, long run. Michael Nathanson with us. Thrilled to have him with us with Moffat Nathanson. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.